If nothing seemed out of the ordinary to you, then those knitters are doing their job right, to conceal a message from your very eyes and ears. Innocent and commonplace as it seems, knitting was one of the many methods of transporting secret messages during wartime, especially during World War II. Unlike the term cryptography, which may be the more popular term that refers to the art and mathematical science of sending secret messages, today my podcast will focus on one particular form of cryptography, steganography. We will follow the story of British secret agent Phyllis Latour Doyle and the logistics of this unique cipher. But before we get into the story of Doyle, we need to highlight some key differences between cryptography and steganography. Similar to cryptography, steganography is also a way to encrypt messages in order to render them unreadable except to the receiver. However, one main difference, and this difference being the driving factor behind the determination of the outcome of D-Day, for example, lies in the fact that these secret messages are also meant to be physically hidden, so it was not known to be have sent in the first place. This is unlike cryptography since in the latter, it matters less if a message is intercepted since the sender relies on the security of the cipher used, regardless of who sees the message. But looking at it in another way, steganography also adds another layer of security by having the message be undetectable. Therefore, steganography really embodies the idea of hidden in plain sight, right in front of your eyes and you wouldn't even have the faintest idea. But let's not assume that knitting ciphers to one's content is the only form of steganography. Throughout the history of time, steganography has been widely used across empires and native civilizations. Back in the 5th century BCE, Histadius of the ancient city Anatolian shaved the head of a messenger and then wrote a message prodding another city to revolt against Persia. He then waited for the messenger's hair to grow back in order to send him on his way. Writing wasn't the only way to convey a message. Although a more crude making, the Nazca civilization in Peru created enormous geoglyphs, which is a large design etched into the landscape. From up close, nothing looks out of the ordinary. At eye level, it looks as if there's nothing more than a paved gravel road, but from aerial view, you can then see shapes representing a spider or a small chick with feet half its body size. Historians estimate that these markings were made as early as 300 AD. Moving to the 1550s, Girolamo Cardano used a cutout grid laid over a piece of text in order to show the intended message that would appear through the holes. Albeit more impractical and harder to put into widespread use, a message can be adequately hidden if rendered well using this method. Next, during World War II, technology such as the microdot was invented and implemented, especially through the Nazis. These microdots are made of microfilm chips that contain information that is compressed substantially into maybe about one millimeter in size. That's really small. That's about the thickness of your credit card. The sudden proliferation of the implementation of cryptography during World War II can be seen by the multiple technologies used by both the Allies and the Axis, such as the infamous Enigma, Japan's purple cipher machine, the use of the Navajo code talkers, and all the recruitments at Bletchley Park and Washington, D.C. to break these said codes. It seems like a code of any aspect could be created, so it's not too crazy to realize that one of the lesser known, but nonetheless invaluable to the Allied war effort, was created through the prosaic activity of knitting. Yes, knitting. In 1944, the Allied forces were prepared to carry out the largest military assault in history, in Normandy, France, or more well known as D-Day. These Allied landings lasted from June 1944 to August 1944. 156,000 Americans, Canadians, and British troops landed on Normandy's very fortified coast and began the invasions, paving the path for northern France's liberation from the Nazis. By August, France was liberated. Many people call the victory of D-Day the beginning of the end of the war, where the tides were turned and show the Allies' potential victory. 
Phyllis Latour Doyle was one such prominent figure who worked behind the curtains to contribute to the success of D-Day. Originally working with the Royal Air Force of Britain tending to and fixing aircraft, once she received an offer to transfer to the Special Operations Executive, whose objective was to spy and ambush on Nazi-occupied areas of Europe, she was more than ready to take the job on. I didn't need three days to make a decision. I'd take the job now. It didn't take much for her to instantly agree. Earlier that year, her godmother's father was shot by the Germans while her godmother was captured as a prisoner of war by the Nazis. Later, she committed suicide while in captivity. To Doyle, this was her way of avenging her parental figures who died too soon, and so tragically. Known as Paulette while undercover, Doyle made quite a transition from fixing aircraft to a physically strenuous and very, very dangerous spy agent. I learned how to get in a high window and down drain pipes, how to climb over roofs without being caught. World War II was a time when non-computerized cryptography was perhaps reaching its peak, its use proliferating and determining the flow of invaluable information between the militaries and governments, enemy strategies, what the other side's next step was, troop movements, possible alliances, cargo shipments, and casualties of war streamed through jumbled words on paper or one medium of another. Doyle's mission started in Normandy, where she parachuted herself out of a plane. I was scared. I didn't like jumping, no matter what part of the aircraft it was from. Disguised as a poor 14-year-old French girl, when in fact she was actually 23 years old, biking around the Calavados region of Normandy in May, she claimed she lived in the countryside with her family to avoid the Allied bombings as her cover story. Doyle had a total of six bikes hidden around the countryside. And on a daily basis, she would interact with the Germans, making herself seem like a friendly helper. I mean, who wouldn't want to buy a bar of soap from an innocent civilian? Then on the side, she would secretly listen in on their conversations and pass on useful information using her knitting tools. I always carried knitting because my codes were on a piece of silk. I had about 2,000 I could use. When I used a code, I would just pinprick it to indicate it had gone. I wrapped the piece of silk around a knitting needle and put it in a flat shoelace, which I used to tie my hair up. Although clever and very low-key, not everything went smoothly as planned, and Doyle had to rely on her improvising skills to get herself out of tight situations with a greater authority that was controlling Normandy. One day while helping the Germans load a truck, she was stopped by the police. Doyle was searched from head to toe with every single piece of article of clothing inspected, including her hair. That's exactly where she hid her knitting materials and codes. The officer was looking suspiciously at my hair, so I just pulled my lace off and shook my head. That seemed to satisfy her. I tied my hair back up with the lace. It was a nerve-wracking moment. Being a spy not only put Doyle under constant vigilance for being suspicious, she was also starving and had no shelter. But luckily in some parts of France, she was able to find Allied sympathizers. They provided her shelter and food whenever possible. The end result of Doyle's escapades was that she was able to successfully send a total of 135 secret messages to Britain in August 1944. Her information was used to pinpoint the most effective locations for the D-Day landings in Normandy. Not everything was accurate though, and as a consequence, that cost the lives of civilians. Women and children became collateral damage of her spying efforts. It was a horrible feeling. After the war, Doyle went back to Kenya, got married, had children, and settled in New Zealand. Of course, like any other famous codebreaker during the war, her contributions had to remain classified, meaning that she couldn't even tell her children, or husband. 
so for many decades, they had no clue that she was once a secret British spy hero. Now at age 96, Doyle is to receive France's highest decoration, the Legion of Honor, for her courage during World War II. But how exactly can you send a message embedded in this knitted scarf, mitten, or shawl? First of all, knitting was a good cover. Low-tech messages meant that knitting was a good medium to use. Add that to the fact that it was normal for knitting activity to increase during wartime, especially when campaigns encouraged women to do their part to support the war effort by knitting socks and mittens and hats for their soldiers while their loved ones were out in the battlefield. Together, those two facts meant that no one would suspect women knitting more frequently. Maybe today we would see this as objectifying a woman's role, but the fact remains that during the 1940s, this was the role that people expected women to take on, and on almost every occasion, they took it on with pride. So, to start, there are two main types of knits, the V-stitch, which looks like a V, and the horizontal bump called a purl, which is just a bump in a line. Spies would use a certain combination of stitches to make messages. Morse code was a popular option. Otherwise, spy could also make their own code that would be easier to not be represented with words or letters. To knit a message in Morse, the spies would have one purl stitch represent a dot, while three purl stitches in a row representing a dash. V-stitches will space out the letters and words. It could be arbitrary, but for the sake of clarity, let's say that three V-stitches differentiate letters, and seven V-stitches separated whole words. The combinations in knitting fills up a piece of garment pretty well. Using this exact said method, the simple phrase, I love you, would take up a total of 83 stitches. To a non-knitter, it would be very odd and very hard to spontaneously guess that a scarf contained a secret message in a way that it was knitted, so for the most part, knitting messages was secure. Other than the use of Morse code, there are plenty of other ways one could incorporate codes into knitting. During the Belgian resistance during World War II, agencies recruited Belgian civilians who lived close to rails so that they could take note of which kinds of trains were passing by. One type of stitch was used to record a passing train, while a drop stitch, where the knitter simply forms a hole, to record the passing of another type of train. The trains could be freight trains, shipments of supplies, passenger trains, or whatever was agreed on. Eventually, mailing knitted apparel would join the list of other banned items, which included postal chess games that were sent internationally, crossword puzzles, newspaper clippings, lovers' X's and O's, and most bizarrely, children's drawings, all of which were platforms used by spies during World War II. Knitting messages dates all the way back to the American Revolution period, where civilians with British troopers stationed inside their home would knit messages and pass on knowledge of British strategies and their next plans of action onto George Washington's soldiers. Madame Lavengel during World War I overlooked the passing of German convoys and tapped codes with her shoe to her children to write down as if they were doing homework. At the same time, a German marshal was forced to stay in their house. Needless to say, he didn't suspect a thing. Because who would think of knitting as such a harmful pastime in a time where people fear that they could be bombed at any point in time? And now finally, from what we saw with Phyllis Latour Doyle and her contributions to the planning and execution of D-Day, we can't deny the fact that these codes, which were oblivious to everyone else, certainly played a priceless role in deciding the outcome of major wars and turning points in history, literally with their bare hands. The next time you see an image or a piece of clothing, you will never know that it could possibly be a secret message hitting right in front of you, in plain sight.